Welcome to Acts of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, glad to be here. Yes, glad to be here, but not playing Zelda. I think we all wish that we were playing Zelda right now, um, instead of writing yeah, about it yeah. and podcasting about it. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of writing and a lot of podcasting, and a lot of playing, too, so I have a nice balance going on. As for me, um, I've had to table Zelda because I've been playing Mass Effect Andromeda all week, um, and I'm going to be reviewing <laughs> hard it life. next week. Yeah, hard knock life. So, uh, <laughs> Mass Effect Andromeda, as we are recording it today, man, it is getting a lot of heat on the internet. Have you seen that, Nadia? Yes, I actually uh, retweeted uh, a picture of just someone had those dead-eyed stare and or jerky movements, and I kind of made a, a comment about uh, you know a place. I heard the PlayStation chime in the back of my head from the old days. Oh, the old old days, like the old PlayStation One. The old boot-up chime that makes you think of those like real dead-eyed stares, as they were. And <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that bad. I mean, at least the face was round, but it, it didn't look great by by any means. Yeah, um, there was um, what was it? Somebody was posting animated GIFs of the uh, the various characters doing their thing, and it was just like, ooh, ooh. Yeah, ooh. Um, I did see some of the walk cycles being made fun of, and people were like replying with with, with GIFs of Vincent McMahon, like kind of doing that strut. And uh, someone else said that it looks like uh, the character in question uh, looked like they took a dump in their pants. Oh God. <laughs> Which is always a really apt way of describing a bad walk cycle. There's a thing on the Reddit front page of like a fish doing this little like blub 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 thing <laughs> it's actually also kind of remarkable yeah and I, I i'm not i'm not really trashing upon the game because i hate mass effect by any stretch of the imagination i don't I, it's not really one of the series i'm deep into but uh you probably have more commentary on this topic than i do cat i mean it kind of bored me at the beginning um i kind of commented that going from zelda to like traditional AAA is like going from a michelin star restaurant to the olive garden <laughs> hey now don't jump on the olive garden actually it's been years since I've been at the uh, I think the as I alluded to in an article that I was d- discussing the controversy on the website which you can go check out um, I alluded to the fact that Mass Effect Andromeda's opening is pretty weak all things considered mm-hmm. um, a lot of the problem is down to the fact that there's just no tension and there's no like sense of chaos like mm-hmm. they're on this sleeper ship and they come out of hyperspace and it's been 600 years and everybody's waking up and immediately everything starts to go wrong. And like, there's this like horrible cloud that's like messing up the ship. And like you discover that all the planets that you were coming to visit after 600 years are, have been like horribly trapped or like they're not viable and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And you're like, Oh, well I should be feeling a lot more. Um, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the case in Mass Effect 2, like I was kind of comparing it in my mind, where in Mass Effect 2, like immediately the first thing that happens is that your ship gets sliced in two. And Ouch. you're like, everything's going crazy, and there's fires everywhere, and you're like abandoning ship, and you're like going, mm-hmm. holy crap. And then it ends with like Shepard getting ejected and like basically burning up in the atmosphere. <laughs> and that, that's <laughs> the opening. And you like... That's we, a hell of a start. It's a hell of a hook. And it's it's a great, great opening. I, I would say maybe the gold standard for the entire series. Like the way that it bookends the action is really phenomenal. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. Andromeda just feels like weirdly sedate. And like, yeah, in all honesty, the writing is a, a little wooden. And the characters don't look that great. Um, 
my character, uh, the the character I created looks kind of puffy. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> Stay like, puffed. Like her cheeks look. She she looks like a chipmunk. She's half chipmunk. This is an alien. This is a game about aliens. Maybe she's half chipmunk. And her eyes are like bulging out. Oh God, fish chipmunk. <laughs> I mean, she's got fish like. Monk. Like, she's got this bug-eyed look, like, when I'm playing, and I'm just like, ah! <laughs> uh, and, and she's got, um. well, I gave her purple hair. Like, you know, at times, she doesn't look bad. Mm-hmm. And, and in all honesty, as I've played, like, through the game, I've kind of gotten used to the, the character models and everything. Um, and I think that your your crew members aren't that bad. But, uh, like, my actual character, I'm just like, ah, I really screwed that one up. But the character customization <laughs> options aren't super great. Not by the sounds of it. Not if you created a fish chipmunk gem by the, by what you're describing to me. I think the problem Bioware is facing is that they put a lot of their resources into making really good planets, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, they didn't count. And they were like, "Well, well, we won't put as much emphasis on the character models because we need to keep the frame rate rate up or whatever." Um, right. But now they've run into a situation where everybody is just focused on the character models, and it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's kind of, a, I mean, myself included, everyone's kind of a smartass. We love tweeting this stuff. You can't really get away with the bad character models anymore. Yeah, I, I'm, I almost guarantee that this, like, little kerfuffle it probably just murdered Mass Effect Andromeda's Metacritic score. Ouch, you think so? Yeah, I think that reviewers are going to have, are going to feel like they have license to take the knives out now. Oh, well, if it's a if it's a good game, I mean, look at Breath of the Wild. We kind of forgive the frame rates on that one, but um, yeah, because the rest of the game's so good. Maybe this is the same situation. Yeah, maybe it is. And in fact, I was saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Essentially, um, mm-hmm. I think that like the first like opening sequence isn't necessarily a great way to judge the overall merits of Mass Effect Andromeda. And I was encouraging mm-hmm. people to kind of wait. Uh, for the final like game mm-hmm. or the final review I should say it's just interesting how you describe that opening and the way the writers Bioware obviously tried to uh, make it so dramatic but you can't really bring yourself to care about a bunch of planets versus a spaceship because it's like well what the hell do I care that's not my planet <laughs> but if your spaceship gets cut in half in the middle of space well that's that's a very urgent thing <laughs> Yeah, it kind of is a little bit, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think it's more. I think it's more that the pacing is kind of ponderous. Um, mm-hmm. The the soundtrack isn't really on. I think that like uh, Mass Effect 2's opening has like the op- feeling of like an Abrams movie where like everything right. is happening at once, like everything is super chaotic. Um, I did a big like Mass Effect 2 um, essay. Like I was talking about how like in the suicide mission, like everything feels like so chaotic and like everything's moving really fast. <clears throat> you're heading, you're descending into the heart of the collector base with your, with your team, and uh, like you are hearing the person you sent into the ventilation shaft is sending you updates, and you're having to keep her alive. And meanwhile. Uh, your secondary team is sending reports that they're engaged and it just feels like everything is happening at once while you're mm-hmm. also fighting. Uh, exactly. Whereas Andromeda kind of is like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Oh. <laughs> that was a nice planet. Yeah, I, oh, well. I guess. Um, and it feels a little bit kind of like reheated Mass Effect. Um, a lot of the crew members follow into kind of the same tropes. Um and it don't really stand out to me and like the villains really don't work in my opinion 
Um, at least mm-hmm. not in the early going. I, I don't think that they're sufficiently creepy. That's too bad. Um, I think you mentioned, maybe it was on Slack or elsewhere, about how uh, the crew members are basically the same as always, but just kind of swapped around a few uh, character traits. Like uh, uh, the Krogan in, who's in the game is very, basically just Rex again. Yeah, he's more or less basically Rex again. Um, so, yeah, and, and there was... There was there were some other things um, that were kind of like it felt the the combat feels a little last gen, mm-hmm. uh, like in terms of the shooting. I, I feel like we've had much better third person shooters since uh, since Mass Effect Three, in, including Gears of War Four, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like Mass Effect Andromeda is kind of stuck squarely on the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty in those terms. But right, I I think that. I think the biggest problem that I'm having right that I had in the early going, I'm, I can't speak to the rest of the game because obviously I'm in, under embargo, is that uh, there's this massive new galaxy and it's a great new setting and it's a good way to kind of put the previous trilogy behind them. Mm-hmm. Like people are like kind of ragging on that, but I, I think that element was smart. I, I think it was smart of them yeah. to have a new setting um, with new aliens and the whole nine yards, whatever. Uh, I, I think that they don't do a good enough job of making it feel alien. Right. Right. Like you show up and they're like Star Trek aliens there. Like they have <laughs> With the heads and they're the kind of humanish. And like, that's kind of similar to all the other aliens, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it would have worked better if the, the villains of Andromeda were mysterious and inscrutable and terrifying rather than, you know, funny rock monsters. <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Although, uh, I never said no to a rock monster. They're kind of cool. Nadia. What? Uh, I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's good to say no to a rock monster. <laughs> sometimes you got to say no to a rock monster. Yes. But, okay. I mean, I... I guess we'll see about Mass Effect Andromeda because the reviews will be going up next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will see if the reviewers do, in fact, take out the knives. But uh, I think that people are primed and ready. Um, so... To cut it up. To cut it up. But in the meantime, uh, let's talk about a RPG that is currently near and dear to our hearts. And we didn't really get a chance to discuss last week. And that's the Persona 4 Golden Report. Persona! All right, Nadia. I mean, you've had a few weeks to play since the last time we chatted. So lay it on me. How is Persona 4 Golden going? Where are you? Uh, well, the thing is, I didn't want to play too much more after uh, we talked last week. I didn't really want to lose my place and, and forget what we we're going to talk about. Mm. So, uh, because I think that we mentioned we were going to have quite a discussion about uh, the reveal of uh, Naoto. Mm. Do you want to have a con- Do you want to have that conversation? We we should have that conversation. I think. Okay. Well, what's your opinion? So, uh, okay. I, I suppose. I mean, do you want to like kind of lay it out for the listener, like like what happens? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, Naoto is the uh, quote-unquote boy detective who was put on the case to uh, solve the, mis- the murder mysteries after the police couldn't really hack it. Um, and uh, eventually he gets sucked into the TV and uh, the usual stuff happens, shadows, blah, 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 blah. Uh, actually, this time the, uh, the area was a secret base, which I-, I found very compelling. I love the music for that area. And uh, just the uh, the theme of a secret base kind of... It, it kind of fits the whole boyishness of uh, Naoto, mm. uh, who is uh, very um, 
very uh, irritated over the fact that he's often thought of as a kid, even though I think he knows in his heart that's what he basically is. Mm. And of course, the secret that he holds that that holds that um, that fits with the whole spy theme as well. Uh, anyway, you you meet up with him and uh, you fight his shadow, which is a really cool like mech thing, as I recall, like this, this toy mech almost. Uh, that wasn't too hard to, to bring down, but um, you discover that Naoto has been. Uh, basically, he is a she. She, uh, mm. she disguised herself as a boy to be taken more seriously by her colleagues, uh, for obvious reasons. Now, it's been a, it's been some time since this happened, and I wasn't paying too close attention at the time. But this was quite controversial, wasn't it, Kat? You you would know better than I. I think kanji, like the whole kanji thing, has been more controversial. All things considered. Yeah, yeah I was thinking about that because. Now, not being uh, a queer person myself, I don't really have a dog in this fight, but <laughs> I personally felt a lot more uncomfortable with Kanji's uh, scenario than I did with Naoto's. Uh, Kanji's, you had the real stereotypical lisp sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a strong whiff of gay panic going on right there. You had a huge whiff of gay panic, and, and to be fair, you still have a huge whiff of gay panic going on in the this the game with... Uh, uh, Yosuke never seems to really let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, and that's kind of irritating, frankly, and I mostly like Yosuke. Uh, but with Naoto, I don't really get the sense that she was... Uh, that I don't know. I seem to remember people saying, oh, she's she's denying she's transgender, but um, that's... I just get the case... I just get the feeling that she was literally just hiding her identity, her gender identity, to... Uh, to be taken more seriously by her colleagues. I don't think it was a case of that she actually uh, has that dysphoria going on. Yeah. She just yeah. wanted to be taken seriously. And as as a woman, and you're a woman as well, mm-hmm. and I, we both know that there are very much instances where if you are a man, you're going to get taken much more seriously than if you are a woman. Yeah, I, I don't get the impression that Naoto is transgender. Um, mm-hmm. There is a moment where they show, um, I think... The, Naoto's shadow shows a like an operating table. Yes, yes, I, I remember that. And they're like basically like, "Oh, do you want to be a boy? Well, here's the operating table right here." Nah, and they make being transgender like they equate it to kind of like this horrible mechanized Mutil- project. Yeah, it's like process. mutilation. Yeah, it's like mutilation where you're going to like lose your like real self or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I kind of strongly disagree with. Um, and mm-hmm, I think it's one of the worst. Uh, it's one of the not so great moments in Persona 4, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Persona 4 deserves credit for kind of grappling with issues like, I don't know, like gender and mm-hmm. uh, like, like, especially gender identity. Like, yes, it's going- absolutely. Essentially, like, Persona 4's motives are, like, good, right? I mean, it's like saying, mm-hmm. uh, hey, like, Kanji, just because Ganji likes, like, knitting and stuff doesn't mean that he's gay. And yeah, exactly. Just because Naoto is, like, a very smart detective um, doesn't mean that uh, she's transgender. Um, mm-hmm. Like, she can be a girl and also very smart, and she can, like, kind of embrace all this. And so, like, there's an, a positive message, but... yeah. But it also comes at the expense of kind of like not demonizing so much, but making being gay or being transgender maybe a bad thing. 
Yeah, uh, definitely. I appreciate the message with both Kanji and Naoto, but the delivery could really use some work. But uh, I'm not surprised that this is the case, to be perfectly honest, because uh, as I've said many times on this podcast, I, I did in fact live in Japan for a few years. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be perfectly honest, um, the way that uh, LGBT issues um, and transgender issues are dealt with are very, very different. And yeah. this game was written by Japanese people for a Japanese audience. Um, and mm-hmm. localizing that kind of thing is always tricky. Exactly. So in many respects, I'm kind of like, well, I don't I don't think it necessarily gets a free pass. But also, like, it's good to keep in mind the context in a lot of respects. Yeah. Um, I'm, I am very curious how Persona 5 is, will handle this sort of thing. Uh, uh, might not at all. I mean, like, I don't recall Persona true. 3 really, like, diving in. Like, one of the main things of Persona 4 is kind of finding your inner self and, like, making mm-hmm. peace with it. Exactly. Uh, like, with Chie, it's, like, being, like, see, like being outwardly, like, boisterous and tomboyish, but in, inside feeling very, I, I suppose, mm-hmm. like, kind of self-hating, like, self-deprecating. Yeah, like, vulnerable. Um, with Yukiko, it's, like, always having to be you know, like the perfect uh, woman who's running this in, but secretly wanting to be like, uh, you know, kind of funny and goofy and kind of like Chie, mm-hmm. right? Like always like mm-hmm. looking at Chie and going, God, why can't I be like you? Like they're both looking at each other <laughs> going, ah, you're the ideal version of what I want to yeah. be. Yeah. And and so on and so forth, like Kanji, um, Naoto, um, Rise, like Rise is like having to put on the public face of like being an idol, but like being uncomfortable with that life and just wanting to bake. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that one was interesting too because if I'm not mistaken, her shadow was very, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, lustful. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Japan, idols have to be very innocent and cute. Mm. Yes, a uh, very young. Because mm-hmm. um, there's that whole aspect of like older adult men like essentially exercising total power over them and that's where the whole like being like super demure and like super cutesy like kind of thing is it's mm-hmm. yeah I, I have thoughts but um, <laughs> all right putting all of that stuff aside um i feel like these are well tra- trodden like kind of discussions um but I, I feel like it's worth having them with you now that you've played them <laughs> yeah i i've i've been looking forward to having discussion about it um it's just uh, it's just kind of a, a very interesting sort of thing to, to revisit because uh, I just feel like um, even as far as we've come, we can always go further in terms of uh, sensitive representation with this sort of thing. I still think Naoto is an interesting character. Um, I, I think that I identify with Naoto in some ways because she has kind of an uncomfortable relationship with her femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, I can relate to that. Yeah, which she like it's put on display like multiple times like there's one instance where like there's a swimsuit contest and she's like like expected to come out in kind of like a bikini with everybody else and like Mm. she is way effing like uncomfortable with that and Mm -hmm. like i can way identify with that to be perfectly honest um so i think that that particular aspect is something that like it, it it's a little cartoonish in the way that it handles it, but mm-hmm. it's something that I can definitely identify with. Uh, something I could see being controversial. I haven't run into it yet, but uh, 
uh, I don't mind a spoiler if you want to go ahead and, and confirm or deny, but uh, are they going to be like, is Kanji going to be like, oh, phew, I'm not gay after all? Because I know he had a thing for uh, Naoto when uh, he thought that she was a boy. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I do know that that is maybe one of the main threads of like his, I don't know, how 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 are your social links with Kanji? Have you, uh, have you reached the top or have you been deprioritizing him? No, to my great surprise, I realized I hadn't formed a social link with him. So wow. I, I've only done that recently. So I'm maybe at like two or three right now. Okay, but I've been I've been talking to him about stuff, and I saw his speedo. <laughs> <laughs> that was a speedo, all right. Who's your highest social link? Uh, I, th- in terms of the the crew or everyone in general. Everyone in general. I think my highest is Nanako. Nanako. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, well, here's the thing. Like, I go, I go into the the house, and I see that like she has the exclamation mark over her head, and I'm like, I can't resist going over and talking to her. And then if you say no, even if you do say no, it'll she'll be disappointed, and I'll be feel bad. Yeah, she'll go. Aw. So <laughs> she'll go. Oh, so I, I'm just like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and, and ride this. <laughs> uh, who's your main party? Main party is usually uh, let's see, um, Chie. Uh, Yukiko and uh, Kanji. Uh, spoiler: Nanako. Oh, sorry, not Nanako. Na- <laughs> uh, Naoto is really strong. I had a feeling that might be the case, and uh, I actually uh, really like the look of her persona. It's this little tiny thing. Her insta kill spells are really useful um, because so many of the uh, late game enemies are vulnerable to um, what was it? I think light and dark or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if they are weak to the element of her insta-kill attacks, bam, they're dead. Oh, that's good to know. Although I'm not sure who I would kick out because uh, is like, really strong. She has the uh, ice attacks as well. Uh, Yukiko I definitely can't kick out because she's got incredible fire attacks and she's got great healing attacks. Well, healing Oh, yeah. Y- Yukiko is great to keep around. Um, I'd consider ca- kicking out Kanji. No. <laughs> I mean, if you like your party, like, stick with them, you know, there's no reason. Though I would say that you should really max out the social links with your party. Like, I would prioritize yeah. that because you get more powerful personas as a result. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I have been working on that. And I've also been working on the beef bowl challenge with, with no- yeah. without much luck yet. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> beef, 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 beef. I haven't uh, escaped the meat dimension yet, though. Really? Oh. Nope. What month is it? Uh, let's see. I'm in the second semester. I'm pretty deep into September now. Okay, second semester, pretty deep into September. So you're you're well past the halfway point. Like you're moving yeah. right along. By the way, did you know that there are Persona Four Golden? Uh, there are Persona Four speedrunners who have beat the game in 14 hours. <laughs> wow, 14 hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I heard. I saw you mention something about that on Slack, but I, I haven't looked over it yet. But uh, 14 hours. Wow, for a speed run, that's, I want to say that's incredible, but this is Persona, so that is kind of incredible. It really is, isn't it? Um, Like, I I just can't imagine it because there are so many, like, time-consuming story scenes and stuff. Are they skippable? Mm -hmm. I I think they might be skippable, though. They must be skippable. Yeah, and if you, like, time things out just right, like, you can get through things pretty fast. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, but, man, like, 14 hours to beat a Persona 4 game is, like, pretty incredible. Um, I I think that you would lose a lot just by speed running it, though. Oh yeah. I, well, I'm I'm going to assume that most speedrunners have 
well, I would say they know the game inside out, but then again, you have people who are beating Zelda within an hour, <laughs> like a day after the game came out. So. Yeah, that is also ridiculous. And Mike interviewed them, and you should go check it out on the site. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Speedrunners are neat. Last question. Uh, what's happening in the story um, now that you have Naoto? Because I think she's the last person that you recruit. Yeah, she's the last person that I recruit, as far as I know. But the main thing that's been happening, uh, I spent a lot of time on... Uh, vacation which is where i saw kanji speedo (laughs) but also it seems like they caught the the killer except uh he wasn't the killer well he he was a killer he killed uh king moron Mm -hmm. but he wasn't the one responsible for everyone else the copy yeah he was a copycat killer uh so he wasn't the one responsible for everyone else's deaths and that's why uh that i think that's how i got tangled up with uh, noto in the first place because she knew that wasn't the end of it all so she kind of got really deeply involved and got sucked into the TV, and um, the rest is history. Yes. But uh, so I'm still on the the path of the original killer. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, hopefully I'll get there soon. Indeed. Um, well, you better hurry because we have like two weeks until Persona Five comes out. Yeah, I'll be plugging through it like uh, through this weekend and the next uh, week. I'm really hoping to finish it soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to your final thoughts. Um, It's been a lot of fun kind of revisiting Persona 4 with you. And I know that a lot of people have been having fun revisiting you with you as well. Um, By the way, um, uh, we're probably going to need something else to talk about. Maybe we should do a Persona 5 report. I was just just about to ask you if we should do that. Like uh, a Persona 5 report sounds like a really good idea to me. Yeah, I think so, because uh, we're going to be playing pretty much together. and Yeah, I think so. The release schedule slows down considerably um, mm-hmm. from April onward. Um, and we were going to do a Final Fantasy fourteen report, but we haven't gotten around <laughs> to that yet, uh, mostly because we've been kind of slammed. Um, so I wouldn't mind doing that as well at some sure. point, um, just because... I mean, Final Fantasy fourteen is popular. There's an expansion coming out. I sort of feel like we really ought to do this. Yeah, I I think uh, I think April is going to be a great time for both Persona five and Final Fantasy fourteen because, as you say, there's not a whole lot coming out uh, until gosh, I think we're probably clear and free until E three. Indeed. Well, uh, in the meantime, I am playing another classic RPG, and I think we should talk about it right now. I think we should. All right, Nadia, um, I've been crazy busy this past, these past, like, I don't know, month or so, um, mm-hmm. between getting a Switch, um, getting Zelda, like, Super Robot Wars V came in, though I haven't had, like, any time to play it. Um, yes. Near Automata, like, I have a code sitting, and it's just going, play me, Catherine, play <laughs> me, especially with Redeem Katie. me, redeem me. Especially with Katie, who has finished it and, like, was just over the moon in love with it, um is coming on the podcast in the second segment, which I probably should have mentioned, but I didn't because I'm a bad podcast host. But um, <laughs> You're the best. Yeah, so so Chrono Trigger. I did manage to sneak in a couple hours last night. And nice. so I'm in the Ocean Palace now. Oh, sweet. So you know what I mean about the music then. I mentioned that on Monday. Yeah, the music is really good. Um, I think I think I like Zeal. Like, I, I like the soundtrack for Zeal kind of a lot too. <laughs> Yeah, I gave Zeal a shout out too because Zeal has a that whole area of the game has a very interesting sound to it because mm. uh, Corridors of Time um, is a very sort of as I said a bouncy, dreamy song. Uh, but when you get to Zeal, you realize that like you are up against things that you can't even begin to touch, and the music really reflects that. 
Yes, I think one of the things that Chrono Trigger does really well is building up Lavos as like an unstoppable, like terrifying villain across time. Mm-hmm. And he is. Yeah. Um, uh, a villain so powerful that his mere presence is enough to drive um, like a queen mad. Yes. Yeah, like Lavo's ways. <laughs> like just just that is enough to make her go crazy. Like that's really mm-hmm. cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, because they mentioned like uh, terrifying Cthulhu-esque power. Yeah, because that's more or less what he is. Like this horrible being from beyond the stars who can transcend time and space. And they really expand on that in Chrono Cross as well. Cosmic horror. Cosmic horror. But uh, how um, how far are you in the Ocean Palace? Have you finished it? Uh, I've been I'm relatively far. So I am playing with, um, sorry, is it Ayla? Um, Ayla, Ayla Robo yeah. um, mm-hmm. as my party because, so, okay. I, I, when I last, when I picked up, I was like right outside the Guru of Woe, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, he broke out of his like ice palace, his ice kind of prison, like, um, he, he broke out of oh, his ice yeah. prison, kind of like an esper. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. The Mountain of Woe. I remember now. Yeah. And like then this giant monster like comes up and he's like the Gigas or something like that. And he has Giga two Gaia. hands. And it's like pretty apparent that it's like, oh, I better take these out. Uh-huh. And at this point I have um, uh, Princess Nadia and Frog. And mm-hmm. like I'm hitting it. But like he's getting like two or three attacks in like before I can even hit. And I'm my party's just getting wrecked. And I'm like, going, what the <laughs> hell? Like, am I like dramatically underleveled or whatever? So I might have peeked out a guide. Gasp. Yep. That's okay. I forgive you. Yes. Um, and I changed up my party to um, Ayla and Robo. And uh-huh. uh, it's turned out to be a very, very powerful combination because Ayla and uh, Chrono, like even though they don't have a triple tech yet, like I do with uh, the other, mm-hmm. um, like Ayla and Robo, or sorry, Ayla and Chrono have that really phenomenal Falcon Strike attack. The Falcon Strike is fantastic. And also Robo can heal the entire party just by himself. Yes, which, which is, is really handy. Super useful because I can just use Heal Beam, right? Yeah. And so I was using the Falcon Strike to take out the hands like pretty mm-hmm. fast. And once the mm-hmm. hands, like, and then, like, when the hands are gone, like, Robo could, like, heal up the party really fast. Unlike Princess yeah. Nadia, who was, like, having a trouble. Though, like, I might have <laughs> looked, I, I might have needed to have taken another look at her spell list. She might have had a full party heal, but I was kind of missing it. And in any case, I was getting, like, hit so hard, and I wasn't taking out the hands fast enough. Like, I really needed mm-hmm. the Falcon Strike to be able to kind of take it out. Um, so I was able to deal with him easily enough and then once he was gone it was back to the the palace um where i found uh well i found the queen and everything but then i got shot into the ocean palace mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep so yeah that just kind of happens yeah it just kind of happens so now i'm in the <laughs> ocean palace and uh, i wasn't sure what to expect like everybody was talking it up as like the best thing in the game and i was like mm-hmm. okay like so I- i'm curious like why do you think the ocean palace is like the best part of the game uh, I just love the way, well, there's the music, of course. I just mm. love the way it looks. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you haven't finished it, there's not much more I can say to you right now about that. Oh, really? Like, it's <laughs> like what happens at the end of the Ocean Palace is like the big thing? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like an interesting design. Um, very, I don't know, curvy? Um, it's almost like there's a central hub and then it kind of radiates outward. 
The thing I love about that whole time period, actually, is how you have that real contrast between the cavemen, the earthbound ones, and uh, Zeal, which is like this really technologically advanced civilization, plus they have magic. And I think the Ocean Palace really reflects that with, the, with its colors and its tech. And its uh, one thing I really like about it, too, is the fact that the music doesn't change if you get into a battle. So it really keeps that atmosphere up through the whole thing. Forgive me, like I, I feel like I missed it, but did they ever explain where the heck Zeal came from? I don't think so. Um, it's just a thing. <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> it's just there. Like the the world, as, like the meteors showed up, the ice age started, and all of a sudden, this giant technologically advanced civilization arises out of nowhere. They they might have explained it. Now that I think about it, I think it has something to do with the the redstone, hmm. and uh, they mentioned something about made it like man evolving and sure. But I think basically the the gist is the people who don't have magic are ex- exiled to the world below where you don't exactly have an opportunity to better yourself when there's like an eternal blizzard going on. Whereas, of course, if you have magic and, and technology up above the clouds where the weather's nice, you can kind of advance a little further than everyone else. Uh, one other thing that I did when I was playing Chrono Trigger... Uh, mm-hmm. Like everybody on Twitter was going, you got to play it in the real aspect ratio, cat. Got to play it in the real aspect ratios because I've been playing the DS version on my 3DS. Yeah. Um, and I hit start and select when I was starting it up. And sure enough, it looks a lot better. Hey, hey, there you go. Um, you have the wings yes, of time, exactly. right? Uh, you mean, are you talking about the, the spaceship? <laughs> the, the epic, yeah, the uh, the, the time machine, epoch, epoch, epic, epoch. I never understood how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Either Why? way, just because there's one part of the game that I wrote, actually wrote about on my own site because it really struck me mm. uh, as, as dark, and that's when you get the time machine and you're kind of going through the the guru's uh, memories to retrieve it. Uh, you kind of you learn that he basically went insane from from homesickness. And that just like really struck me. Well, I mean, I guess that will do that. That will happen. <laughs> then it's just when I was a kid, when I first played the game, I never thought of it as as quite as dark as Final Fantasy VI, and I guess it's not. But it certainly has its moments, and that was one mm. of them. That whole future scenario where something or a place is so bleak that you could go insane from it. Uh, that's something else. I don't know. I think Chrono Trigger is pretty dark. Um, it it really now that I play it as an older person, yes, it is definitely a dark game. Like I, I'm like kind of stretching my mind back a little bit at at the stuff that happens throughout the game, but I can definitely say like that the world destroying scenario at the end is like pretty pretty strong. Yeah, <laughs> the day of Lavos. Yeah, um, and it's like this is something that my friend always hires uh, likes to point out is like the the hunger persists or still you're hungry. Yeah, but you're still hungry. But yep. you're still hungry, which like just speaks to the kind of the constant gnawing famine that is going on mm-hmm. with uh, the future in Chrono Trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not my favorite setting by far, mostly because it's so dark, but it, it really works. It does. Uh, the, the Pink Floyd music, as my brother used to call it. Yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best thing about uh, Chrono Trigger, or one of the many best things about Chrono Trigger is, uh, and we might have been discussing this last week, but how every single per- time period has its own personality and kind of its own like players and like protagonists, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, the, the lizard King and the, the past you had like the fiends in the medieval era you have, um, I don't know, like whatever is happening in the future. I can't remember what's happening in the future. Oh, you have oh, like you know what? living in the sewer Futurama style. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a, that's a good very point. Futurama. It's very new New York. 
<laughs> it is, isn't it? Yes. Um, but uh, and then you pull like a hero from each one, and they're like traveling around with you. So you've got a robot and a cave woman, like as your like companions. It's pretty rad, and they work really well together. Yeah. No, exactly. Like they're like an excellent synergy. <laughs> but um, you fought the the Tyran, right? The the black Tyran, the uh, the Tyrannosaurus. Maybe. I don't remember. I'm trying to remember. Maybe that comes later, but you did meet the uh, the lizard king as he called Asla. Asla. Uh, you mean the one who was like pointing out the meteor and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's actually a she. Right. Yes, she. We were discussing this last week as well. Were we? We I mentioned that she was a yes. I was, I was like, like, like the fact a she, that she was... and I was like, what? Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sound of my mind being blown. By the way. Yeah, she's a lizard queen. I always like that. Well. Uh, well, so it seems like I'm moving right along through the story, and maybe I'm not actually that far away from being done. Uh, I'm trying to think, but you're you're getting there. You're definitely getting there. Yeah, you're quite close, actually. Cause, yeah, yeah, because it's because I've heard that it's only like 15 hours, and it sure seems like I'm hitting some kind of climax. Because, um, I mean, Lavos, like I've seen how Lavos like came to be, and now I'm like in a situation where like Lavos is gaining power. Yes. Um, by, like, uh, victimizing this poor queen who thinks that she's going to be immortal. So I, I sort of feel like it's some, like, a lot of things are coming to a head now. Well, uh, put it this way. You're going to have the option to do a bunch of side quests coming up. Ooh, I'm looking forward to it. And perhaps I will do a bunch of side quests and talk about it on the episode next week. You should, because they're actually really interesting. And each one uh, fleshes out um, the characters that you're mm. with. So they're always good to have. That, those are always good to have. I was going to say that... Uh, I've been really glad to not be playing with spoil to be playing kind of unspoiled uh, on mm-hmm. this game because it's been one of the things that's been interesting is I I had no idea about zeal like I didn't I was totally unaware that this was a thing that existed oh, really? in the game yeah yeah like totally unaware of it I was like I was aware of like the cave person time I was aware of like um, I was aware of the present day obviously in the future and the medieval era but I was not aware of the fact that there's like these highly technological people. So it's, it was really cool to kind of discover that and be like, what the heck is this thing? Yeah, that must have been a really interesting reveal for you because yeah. just you, you go onto the skyway and you there's this whole kingdom above the clouds and you're just like, what the heck? Well, I mean, the meteor shows up and it's like, and then you like get flung into another time period and it's the, the ice age and you figure that everybody's dead or whatever. Yeah. Like, there's, like, a, a really heavy sense of, like, all the people that you are hanging out with are now dead. Yeah, definitely. Because it's been, like, 12,000 years or whatever. It's been thousands upon thousands of years. And I don't know if you noticed, but if you go back to the village after the uh, the meteor falls, you'll have the village people tell you how it's getting colder and, uh, you know, game is fine. It's getting harder to find. And mm. the water, it doesn't, like, restore your health anymore. Actually, come to think of it, like, I think the time, the Stone Age is like 65 million BC. Mm -hmm. um, And then it's like 12,000 BC. Mm -hmm. So maybe there were like literally millions of years um, as an opportunity for uh, this ancient civilization to arise, this super powerful civilization to arise. So, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely time. And I'm sure that Chrono Cross also had had something to say about it, but I can't remember for the life of me. (laughs) But yeah, Zeal, um, Zeal ended up being really rad, and I was kind of glad to have the opportunity to discover it. Though, somebody on Twitter totally spoiled the fact that you can recruit Magus as a character, which I did not know. Oh, yeah. And like, I was like, <laughs> spoiler alert, and they were like, and somebody was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then somebody responds to them going, Ugh, 
I'm sure she's joking. No game journalist <laughs> worth their salt would not know that Magus is a recruitable character. And I'm like, ah, yeah, no game journalist. Yeah, yeah you know. You're, uh, you're not worth your salt, cat. Yeah. Thanks, Nadia. I appreciate that. <laughs> and on that note, I think I'm going to talk about some Nier Automata. So, Nadia, thanks for joining me. And, uh, well, I, I think that next week, unfortunately, we're probably, we may end up having to table um, our Persona 4 Golden and uh, other conversation, but I think we'll revisit it. I hope so. Because I think we're going to have a lot of Mass Effect talk next week. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe we'll just like pick up uh, some Persona 4 and, and other things and then also talk a little Mass Effect as well. and do. Yeah, maybe we'll just be like, eh, Mass Effect, it's okay. Okay, let's talk about Persona. But I also have to talk about Torment. God, I, like, I finally have to talk about tor- Torment Tides of Numenera. Like, the time has oh, come. Oh, there's that too. Yeah. My time has come. <laughs> All right. It is cat's time. Uh, in the next segment, we're going to have Katie McCarthy on to talk about Nier Tamata and her picks for uh, the Shimigami Tensei games that you should be playing uh, well, around before or after you play Persona 5. So don't go away. Okay, I'm here with Katie McCarthy, who uh, was a reviewer of Nier Tamata. She really, really liked Nier Automata. She gave it a perfect score. And uh, this is really interesting to me because it, it feels like Nier Automata has been getting a ton of buzz, Katie. But um, maybe it hasn't been getting as much notice as it could because it's being overshadowed by Zelda and Horizon Zero Dawn. But why Why did you, why did you end up like loving this game so much? Well... This game is real. It totally blindsided me. Like I kind of expected to like it because I've liked platinum games in the past, and I've always heard like interesting things about Nier, but Automata like totally blindsided me. And it just has it does all these really interesting like subversive things, like not just in the game itself, like the mechanics and everything, but like the story is really crazy, and it has all these like really nice little like flavorful like contextualizations of the world and just kind of almost like poking fun at the fact that it's like a game and you're like playing a video game and you're killing a lot of things and it's just kind of questioning why that is and that's so rare i think for games to be that self-aware that it really and the story is really good too and the characters are really interesting and yeah it's a bummer that it's getting so overshadowed because it's such an interesting and amazing game and I don't get this enthusiastic about games that often, so it's. I hope it gets more notice in like the coming months or whatever. I think that it's ultimately going to be overshadowed because I mean the near game was like a kind of a cult classic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was always going to be kind of overshadowed, but it has like a really fervent fan base, and you really saw that with the original near. Uh, did you play the original near? I haven't, so I had to do a bunch of research for playing Automata, and I really want to go back and play it now after liking Automata so much, but I've also heard that gameplay-wise it's not the most polished thing, which is probably where Automata like shines too. It's like you can actually play it and enjoy it, whereas I've heard the first year is kind of like a has cool ideas and does really neat stuff, but it's kind of a slog to get through. The original Nier was really interesting because when it came out like it had this arc of like all of these kind of mainstream reviewers like really killed it and i I specifically remember like the joystick reviewer just like flat out like stopped and refused to play it anymore because they hated the fishing so much (laughs) and 
then like so i was just like oh well i guess it's not that good anymore and it kind of fit into the narrative of oh japanese games aren't good anymore or whatever right Mm -hmm. and then like suddenly this groundswell of like support came out of it and like people were coming out of the woodwork going no near is the best game i've ever played like it's totally amazing have you seen the ends did you see what happens after like the credits roll oh my god um and we actually had a uh, a guest on a couple weeks ago who was in the middle of playing near and he's just like he was talking about how it's been totally blowing his mind um it was interesting to hear you say that the game's like super self-aware um in a way that a lot of games aren't um it's made by uh yoko taro who is known for walking around and well when he's in public and making public appearances he wears a really interesting mask yeah um and he's known for kind of being i don't know in a way like kind of over it about games or he's also like really self-deprecating he's a really interesting figure like uh, i'm kind of curious like how familiar are you with uh taro yoko I wasn't, too, I was kind of slightly familiar with his work, but not much, because I've never really played, like, a, a Dragon Guard game or anything either, mm-hmm. and, but I think playing Nier Automata and being, like, so blown away while I was playing it, I, like, sought out a bunch of, like, interviews with him, and he did, like, a talk at GDC a couple years ago that was really good, and he just, yeah, he's a, he's a cool guy who just has a bunch of interesting ideas, and he's just like, yeah, no one makes these self-aware games so i'm going to make them basically it seems to be his kind of ideology as a creator he's kind of known for being a bit of a nihilist um yeah like uh dragon guard 3 if i recall correctly like it was kind of like a power ranger game essentially uh but like it's really hyper violent and it kind of ends like it it also has multiple endings kind of like near automata uh, and it's really freaking bloody. Uh, like it, it gets really, it gets really, 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 really dark. And that's the case for all of the other Dragon Guard games too. To the point where, like, it almost feels like he's saying, "There's no point to anything. There's no good. There's no evil. Everything is kind of awful." Um, it's kind of disturbing, and it kind of clashes with maybe what you would see in a lot of other games, which focus much more on just making the player feel cool. No, yeah, it's. I, from what I've gathered from like my research I did because obviously I didn't play the first near is like the first near is kind of about humanity and like why do heroes always kill everything in games and just kind of exploring that and near Automata grapples with that but also like takes it a lot further in ways I don't want to like spoil or anything mm-hmm. so when you said that it was like pretty self-aware like could you kind of like explain that like in, in what ways are it super self-aware so there's one of the things when I wrote my impressions, the I think it was the weekend, it was right before the embargo went up and we had been at GDC that whole week, so I couldn't finish it. Um, and one of the things I complained about in my impressions or my review in progress was that the world map is like really awful. It's just super flat and it's really hard to read and you don't really know where anything is. And then I think it was in my third playthrough. So this is, I think I was in my <laughs> second playthrough when I wrote that. And I took I talked to someone in like the resistance camp, which is kind of like your main little hub area where you can rest and whatnot. And this character, I I talked to this random character that wasn't there, I think, in the first playthrough, or maybe I just didn't notice them until later. And they told me, Oh, so the map's bad because the satellite reception's really awful. And androids have been complaining about it, but you guys just have to deal with it. 
And I really liked how upfront and just simple that explanation was. And it made me laugh. And I was like, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. It's like a <laughs> contextual reason why this map is like really awful. And also like currency in that game is literally like the corpses of your enemies that you like pick up. And that's just, that's what money is in that game. And it, you wouldn't know that unless you talk to like these random NPCs in the like resistance camp and stuff. And there's just like all these little nuggets that you have you have to kind of look for. And some of the side missions are really like interesting in that way too, which I was super down on in my impressions too. But as I played a bit more of them, I was, I was kind of less down on them, even though most of them are kind of pointless. But <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you mention um, the kind of like oh we have an explanation for the reason that the the map is bad, and that's because uh, the satellites like are really are really spotty or whatever um it reminds me a little bit of an essay that we pu pu uh, published on the site earlier this week about the original mass effect and they were talking about how they initially were like kind of put off by the the samey architecture on various planets mm -hmm. until they kind of were like going well it, it would actually make sense though because these are like prefab constructions that are like on uh various alien worlds or whatever and like they were okay with that and I'm curious, like, how okay, does it excuse, like, maybe something that's kind of overwhelming from, like, a game design standpoint or whatever, if, like, they kind of hang a lampshade on it or, like, they kind of have an in-universe, like, uh, explanation for it? I think it depends on how it's contextualized. So I think in Nier Automata, because the game's kind of, it has this tongue-in-cheek humor to it, but also is this very serious, like, existentialist, like, story i think that contextualization totally makes it fine because it kind of fits in the world itself and mm -hmm. mass effects if i i have not played the or much of the first mass effect but if that if it feels right in that world and feels like okay that makes sense that's totally okay then i think that's okay but if it's just there for the sake of make trying to excuse it i don't see that being really i don't know yeah it definitely depends per game. Sure. I, yeah, no, like just kind of taking it um, on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel like most games wouldn't even bother to do that, which maybe speaks to kind of the self-awareness in Nier Automata. Um, like it's like going, well, maybe our resources are a little limited um, and we weren't able to make the map as like strong as we could. But hey, it so we'll just come up with a in-universe example for it, um, where other games would be like, eh, well, I hope nobody notices. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think, because Nier Automata is an open-world game, and it does play with that idea of being an open-world game in interesting ways, but, you know, like, most open-world games don't really... It's just, okay, you're going to climb a tower like you do in, like, every Ubisoft, like, open-world game. Or like in Breath of the Wild where you climb a giant tower, but it's not like the same. Like you're unlocking bits of the map, but it's like more like you can just see more and it's like a big vantage point and it doesn't feel like the same as it does in those other games. So it's like it's also like re-implementing those kind of like tropey mechanics and making them more interesting and feel like fresh again. And I think Nier Automata does that and I think Breath of, Breath of the Wild definitely does that too. So uh, I think... Uh, we've been talking about uh, Neurotomata for a little bit, but I don't think we like really properly introduced it. So can you kind of like 
explain the, the kind of the story and then also kind of the, the basic structure of the game for people who aren't like super familiar with it? Yeah, it's kind of a hard game to talk about because it's kind of like three games crammed into one, and or even four if I think about it. But yeah, so four. Well, because yeah, it's hard. It's hard to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I'll I'll kind of just set it up, I guess. But you are an android named Two B, and you have a friend named Nine S, and you're both, co- or your combat android Two B is, and then Nine S is this kind of hacky or like he hacks a lot and stuff and he's this other more kind of intelligent one or android and together you are fighting machines and that's just kind of the set pieces like you're in this you're in earth or on earth and earth is there's humanity's on the moon or something and (laughs) because it's yeah it's a sci-fi thing and you're fighting machines and you're just protecting humanity from machines which want to destroy i don't know it's really weird (laughs) it's kind of like a a, such a standard like oh you're just you know fighting forever and then crazy stuff happens and it's i don't know it's hard to it's such a weird game to talk about because the first playthrough is very simple and just oh okay that that was a sci-fi thing and then Playthrough 2 gets crazier, and playthrough th- 3 slash 4 is, like, a whole new game entirely. So, it's a hard game to talk about, and it's hard to set up. I don't know if How that ma- made any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get what you're saying, because, like, you can't really spoil the ending, so it's a little hard for you to, like, talk about the ways that it kind of goes crazy, right? Yeah, definitely. Especially, yeah, it's just a really difficult game to talk about, and like, because I don't want to spoil it, because like playing it without being spoiled is such a cool experience uh, like how many hours does like a single playthrough take and are do all of the playthroughs kind of take like a similar length of time because i know that like you wrote an article that was like kind of the kind of highlighting the craziest endings in your automata um and it sounds like some of them are really short yeah so it it depends like the first play th- so i did like a lot of side missions which definitely padded out my playthroughs like i think i spent 40 hours across all of my all of my playthroughs or whatever mm-hmm. but i mean you could probably power through it in like 30 hours maybe even less like the first one i think is maybe the longest because you're really underpowered and you're just kind of like learning how to play the game essentially and then two is like a bit shorter like just in general and then three and four is kind of like split up and that one I'd say is about the same length as the first playthrough, probably. And that's all new content. It's like an epilogue, basically. Um, so it's hard to say. I'd say it's probably between 30 and 40 hours for the average player. And that depends on how much side stuff you're doing and also like how good you are at the game. But in the end, like it, it sounds like the endings, like the way that it handled, like it becomes like totally different games in, in some respects are like, what really kind of took you off guard and kind of like elevated the game for you? Yeah, when I when I first heard that this was the type of game where I'd have to play through it multiple times, I kind of groaned. I was like, oh, I, I kind of hate that. But it makes it worthwhile. Like, every playthrough is different and it's not like you're playing the same game again. It's like you're playing either from a new perspective or there's this like gameplay change or this is a whole different story that you have not seen before and it's basically like a sequel and... It's, it's really... The structure of it's really interesting. A sequel within the original game. 
Yeah, it it really feels like playthroughs one and two are like kind of the prologue, and then like C and D are really where the story gets going. It's kind of crazy. That is really weird. I, I wonder how many people will just play through and go, huh, and then that'll be that, and I, like uh, we'll totally miss out on the other stuff. There's a note they do at the end of the first playthrough, like, oh, thanks for playing, and by the way, there's like way more game for you to play. So I hope there aren't people that just discard it because. They really encourage you to play through it multiple times because you won't feel satisfied after the first playthrough. I feel like if you play through it once, you'll be like, I guess that was fun. That had some cool ideas, but it's really like everything else that gets it going. Uh, what is your so what do you think of the combat? Because um, I know that like one of the criticisms of the original year was that the combat wasn't super great. Um, and then, you know, they brought in Platinum Games, who are, of course, known for having excellent, like, combat mechanics, like, mm-hmm. all things considered, even in some of their weaker games. Um, and so, in your opinion, does it kind of, like, is the combat good? Is it, like, a strength of the game? I say it's it's fun. Um, it's not, like, as involved as something like Bayonetta, where it, like, requires a lot of strategy. Like, you can pretty much just, like, hack and slash your way through things, but mm. it's also, it depends on, like, what difficulty you're on and stuff, too, like, like I said, like normal is pretty easy. Hard is like almost a bit too hard. So I kind of wish there's something in between that a bit. But it's it's like also like knowing how when to dodge and just like having like strong weapons and upgrading your weapons and upgrading your pod to have different abilities, which is kind of like your little floating thing that will shoot at things while you're fighting with your swords and stuff. Right. And so it's it's I'd say it's good. I enjoyed my time with it. And then some of the other playthroughs in, like introduce different systems too, which I which mix it up in like a really fresh way. That's really fun. That's really good because I, I could see how like the multiple playthroughs could start to feel like a bit of a grind if they just mm-hmm. keep relying on the same things over and over again. Yeah, they they definitely switch it up and they like make it it's it's like they know like okay, you're going to be playing this a bunch of times. We need to make it worth your while. So, like, other than just, like, story and everything, it, it feels like you're playing something different every time. Did you play the... Did you ever play Frog Fractions? I'm sure you did, right? No, but I've always wanted to. And that, yeah, I... And now that Frog Fractions 2 is out, I really need to get on both of those. I feel like I'm more just, like, read a lot about them than actually, you know, obviously played them. I'm surprised you haven't played Frog Fractions, because that game seems so in your wheelhouse. <laughs> it's... It really is so in my wheelhouse, and I've just, it's just eluded me all these years. Fun fact like, games are hard, or games are long, and, and like, everybody has a long backlog. Um, but when it comes to frog fractions, um, the reason I brought it up was that when I uh, had our previous guest on, who was extolling the virtues of Nier in an episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, he called it Frog Fraction Zero. Um, <laughs> because. I mean, like, it starts out as one thing and becomes something completely freaking different. And then it just keeps going into, like, all of these different genres and, like, all of these weird things until the end. You're, like, going, what the heck is going on? And it also makes you feel bad for killing all of the, the bad guys. So be ready for that. <laughs> well, yeah, like, uh, like, Undertale did that, too. To mm. a maybe i don't know i wasn't the biggest fan of undertale which is a controversial oh man don't tell nadia that (laughs) she'll hunt you down i mean near does that kind of thematically like oh kill is like killing bad blah blah blah, that type of moral qualm like really well 
yeah, I, I agree. Like, Nier generally does a good job of revisiting it. It can feel like, it can be, it can feel pretty ham-fisted when done improperly, I think. But mm, definitely. M- maybe at the end of the day, like, Nier in general um, does a good job of making you empathize with your enemies in a way that you normally don't with a lot of games. Um, I think that one of the problems, uh, like I was alluding to these earlier, um, I think a lot of the problems that you'll see in a lot of games is that the developers are focused solely on what would be cool. Um, it, you know, it's a pure power fantasy, right? And mm-hmm. like, what is the most badass thing that you can do? And they end up ripping off movies or they like rip off movies that they liked or like they're just focused solely on the power trip. And I, I think that maybe uh the newer wave of games um near automata is a good example uh like um and also uh undertale which you admitted that you didn't really like but at the very least kind of took a look at this issue um are a little less focused on that and a little more emphasis a little more focused on empathy so i i think that that is maybe kind of a positive trend in game development in general is this move away at least on the part of some developers, from the traditional power trip. Yeah, and it's kind of like playing with a player's like expectations, too. Like Undertale kind of plays with the expectation of JRPGs where you're just kind of like killing everything in sight, and Nier Tomsa does that, too. And, yeah, I, I'm interested to see if other, like other developers that are inspired by like creators like Yoko Taro and, uh, I can't remember the Undertale director's name, but... Um, no, it's okay. But yeah, like I, I, I'm way into these kind of like introspective games, and I think they're way more interesting. And they're they're kind of playing with like how we play games and how we think when we play games, rather than just seeing them as like mindless tools for killing shit. So yeah, there's sadly precious few games are that are that self aware and that introspective. Um, might be because it's a young medium. Yeah, definitely. Um, but. Yeah, uh, you're also writing a like a pretty long Nirtamata essay for the site. I, I th- it should be up by the time that this podcast goes live. Um, could you give us like kind of a like a preview of like what you were going with it? Um, well, I'm kind of writing about philosophy in Nirtamata because a lot of care like the machines you like either friendly machines or bosses are named after famous philosophers. So I'm writing about that. And seeing what else I can hit about the game within that. And yeah, I hope it's cohesive by its end. It's definitely like a hard to write essay because there's so much in Nier Automata to write about. And it's kind of insane. Interesting. They're named after philosophers. Like, why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I don't... I, I guess I'm just trying to um, investigate why and kind of thematically if it's in like he's like the the first line in the game is about oh we want to find this god that created us and kill him so it's i think it definitely (laughs) has to do with that it it starts off like super dramatic like oh who's this god and we have to kill him and that's a favorite yoko taro thing kill god yeah he loves killing god he's not a big fan of uh he's not a big fan of god apparently but yeah, that kind of reminds me, actually, though, that you were talking in your kind of initial impressions that you were, like, really impressed by the, the boss battles, like, th- that it made you, like, feel really small, but in a good way. 
Yeah, I think that definitely has to go, or that definitely ties into the game thematically, too. It's kind of like, you're this, this small android fighting machines forever, and you're just really small. And, like, these machines, like, these bosses, in a way, are kind of god. Like, they're called goliaths, and they're these giant, massive things that just want to kill you, and it's, yeah. I feel like as the game went on, the bosses almost get smaller, which I found really interesting. And I think in my essay, I'm going to try and talk about that a little bit, too. Hmm. So. so they're almost like colossi, but as the game goes on, like, they're kind of, maybe their power is kind of shrinking. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 interesting. But the boss fights in that game are really cool. Just from like a very non like introspective opinion, just like, oh, they're pretty cool. <laughs> well, really interesting game. Um it's a it's a shame that all of the oxygen has been kind of sucked out of um the media space, so there's just really not enough room to be able to talk about Nier Automata, but uh hopefully I mean, we've been giving it some love on the site and hopefully we can continue to do that. Um, but you should go check out Katie's review of Nier Automata on the site. Like I said, she gave it a perfect score. Uh, before you go, Katie, um, I had you write up, um, kind of like kind of recommend a bunch of SMT games, uh, to play before you play Persona 5 or after or concurrently or whatever. But the point is that there's a lot more SMT games than just, you know, Persona 5. Like this is a series that goes way back and you're a fan you said, like, what was your first experience? Was it Persona 3? Persona 3 is my first experience with the SMT series. And then from there, I played 4 after, and then I kind of dove into, like, Nocturne and some other, like, of the DS ones. Um, But I have, like, a problem with SMT games where I don't finish them, except for, like, the Persona (laughs) games. So it's like, I'll get, like, really far, and then I just abandon them, which I do with a lot of really long games. Like, I just get distracted really easily. Well, so, I mean, like, they are really hard. Yeah, they're, like, Nocturne especially is kind of, like, it took me by, because Persona 3 is pretty brutal on its difficulty, 4 is a bit easier, Nocturne is like, oh god, this is kind of ridiculous, which I had never, I think that might have been my first, like, really hard experience with the game. Yeah, Strange Journey totally kicked my ass. Like, it kicked it so hard that I was just like, oh wow, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, here's some of the games that you picked. Uh, you picked Nocturne. Uh, which a lot of people have been just going, yeah, I, I freaking love Nocturne. Good choice. Um, you picked Persona 3, um, Devil Survivor, which do you prefer? So you prefer Devil Survivor over Devil Survivor 2? Yeah, I've never beaten either of them. So I feel like I should, for full disclosure, I should have disclosed this in my article, honestly. But um, I think the premise of one is way more interesting, whereas two is you're kind of bouncing all across Japan and one i feel like cements like this society is on the brink of or this society is like recovering from destruction and it's kind of dealing with the repercussions of that Mm -hmm. um but there are people that argue like two is more like has better combat and has better characters and that's fine they're both good games (laughs) devil survivor 2 is basically neon genesis evangelion like you're fighting the angels like you're in kind of a world where like the second impact has happened um you're working for a shadowy organization it's very evangelion yeah i can definitely see that but yeah i guess i just maybe that's a controversial pick to choose one over two (laughs) no i think devil survivor one is better than two um though i've never been a big fan of the art yeah like 
the art in those games is not the best which is sad because I feel like Shim- that's always was drawn me to the Shin Megami Tensei series is mm. the art in those games is like really dark and like grim and cool and it's kind of like and the character designs are always really neat and I really love the costumes in those games like 4 has re- like Shin Megami Tensei 4 has really cool costumes yeah I totally agree uh, very like the weird mix of samurai and blade runner <laughs> yeah it's it's such a weird that game just has a weird aesthetic i guess because like feudal yeah. society but modern day tokyo and it's just really weird it's like a feudal society underground if i recall correctly like it, yeah, it's it's, it's weird, weird. <laughs> yeah but then like strange journey which you also listed um i'm a fan of that one personally just because i, I think it takes the apocalyptic nature of the the mainline smt games and gives it like a totally different spin um a lot of people compare it to john carpenter's the thing um and i guess there is like a smidge of paranoia to it but i think that um i I don't know like i I think the scope is a lot bigger than that and Mm -hmm. it hits on a lot of like subjects like topics that the thing never really hits on like consumerism and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh it's interesting and it's very faithful to the series because it it does the usual like uh kind of like good versus evil like and then like your care your party members kind of come to embody one side or the other and like you're kind of moving toward order or chaos but like picking order or chaos is like not necessarily like one order is not necessarily good just because it's order or whatever um so it hits on a lot of familiar themes from Shimagami Tensei but it kind of like puts them into a different context which I really enjoy yeah, and I, I I've never finished Strange Journey either, but and it also kind of I don't of goes, blame you. It kind of kicked my ass. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of goes back to or like Shin Megami Tensei one with like the first person, which is an interesting. I guess on my list especially, it's kind of the only. I think it might be the only game that goes back to the first person dungeon from my list because I didn't really list anything pre Nocturne, which I figured I would get some shit about, but I didn't get much so. I feel like most people who are fans in the U.S. like have not really played the games that are like pre-Nocturne <laughs> just because like they're so inaccessible. Um, like the closest you're probably going to get is Persona 1 and 2, which like are like, frankly, I know they have their fans, but they're like a pretty niche interest, all things considered, just because they're so different from Persona 3 and 4. Yeah, the music's really good in those games, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, and then you go even further back to like Soul Hackers, yeah, and Soul Hackers. which got a port to the DS, if I recall correctly, or maybe just the 3DS. One I have of the 3DS, two. yeah, yeah. I I think I pre-ordered that, and I it came with like this really dumb CD and all this really goofy stuff, and then I I think I played like an hour of that game because I did not know it was a first-person dungeon crawler, and I was like, I kind of hate this. <laughs> I mean, so, it's an SMT game. SMT games are first-person dunge- first dungeon crawlers. I just did not put that together until I, it was in my hands, and I was like, oh, man, okay. Persona so, Q is also first-person, but I feel like I was more Etrian Odyssey, and it felt better. I don't know. Maybe that's just my Persona fan side speaking. <laughs> I think it's because it's not as grim as the other SMT games. Um, uh, like, SMT4 and... Uh, like smt4 in particular um and strange journey are both really grim dungeon crawlers soul hackers as well whereas persona q like 
is like very much kind of retains the very light flavor of Persona 4, mm-hmm. which I, you know, like I, I think it makes it less like kind of um, oppressive when you're going through those dungeons, um, which can get really freaking op- oppressive when you're like going square by square and then like enemies are jumping out and attacking you and you're like, oh God, please <laughs> help me. I'm going to die. Also, the music in that game is really good. Yeah. I mean, I, that's another plus side with the Shin Megami Tensei series. Like, they always have really good music. Like, really, like, Shoji Meguro, obviously, is amazing. But, yeah, all that whole series is real has really amazing composers and really amazing music. You put Catherine on there, which is not a Shin Megami, <laughs> Shin Megami Tensei games. Explain yourself, Katie. I, I had to. It's... It's kind of a, I, I kind of explain it. It's kind of a Shimogami Tensei game because Vincent technically appears in Persona 3 Portable. So in that sense, it's kind of a Shimogami Tensei right. game. Yes, I forgot really. that there was a crossover. And everybody thought that was like a hint, I think, to Persona 5. People were like, oh my god, the character from Persona 5 showed up. But no, they were actually <laughs> teasing Catherine. Yeah. Oh my I god, remember, you totally, I, I totally forgot about that. I remember when Catherine was announced and being so upset that they were not making Persona 5. Yeah. And then Catherine ended up being amazing. So it wasn't even a big deal. Persona 5 has been under development literally my entire career um, in gaming. Like, I I remember in 2009 being at 1UP and writing a freaking um, like rumor that Persona 5 was under development. And sure enough, it was. But I, I'm sure you heard this. Like, it was actually under development. But they ended up scrapping it and completely changing it after the earthquake uh, that happened in 2010. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So then, like, that essentially meant, like, more or less starting over. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of glad that they did because it sounds like it would have been totally different. Like, they would have gone for more of an action-oriented kind of thing. And I'm kind of glad that they went for a more traditional approach because while I liked Final Fantasy XV in the end, and be quiet, you... um, Uh, I I kind of prefer turn-based, all things considered, so. Yeah, I definitely prefer turn-based. I mean, there's good, a- like, there's good action RPGs. I mean, I guess Nier Automata is technically an action RPG. Hmm. But I, pre- I definitely prefer turn-based. You put Dancing on ni- All Night on here. Why that instead of the fighting game? I, well, like, Dancing All Night is more like an epilogue to Persona 4. It feels more like a sequel. It's... I like or the arena games are fine and like Ultimax is way better than the first arena but I don't know it's just arena the arena games always just felt like here's another story with these characters whereas Dancing All Night is like here's like a sequel here's what these characters are up to after the events of Persona 4 mm-hmm. and the rhythm games like decent it's not the best like I, there's way better rhythm games out there but I really like the new characters they introduce in it, and I like the whole idol story. Maybe that's just because I like I listen because to you idol like music. idols. <laughs> yeah, like maybe I'm biased. Like I also really like Tokyo Mirage Sessions, which is like an entire game about idols. Like maybe that's just my bias showing through. Like yeah, idols. It's kind of like Idol Master, but not really. The thing um, with Dancing All Night is that it took so long to get to the actual music. Like I felt like I was clicking through the story forever. Yeah, it. I did not expect it to be as visual novel heavy as it ended up being, which was like a nice surprise because I do enjoy visual novels, and I was just expecting cool. I can jam out to Persona Four music, which is awesome because it has a great sound soundtrack. But then it's like, oh, here's this like really dramatic story of 
this idle drama and murder and all this weird stuff and yeah yeah and dancing all night is kind of the epilogue to the series that you said that persona 4 like arena really wasn't yeah because after what like persona 4 kind of has like a happy ending you know it's like everyone's Mm. you know they solve the mystery blah 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 and then like but then he moves away or whatever i think (laughs) and then dancing all night kind of picks up where that leaves off where it's like okay rize's in like Tokyo. i think she's in tokyo from what i remember and you know they're gonna be her backup dancers and it feels like okay that can that could be a thing totally and yeah i don't know it just felt more like it could be like a canon thing whereas i think arena was just like oh let's just pull him back into like the shadow world and so and give him a new like mystery to solve like with the three and four characters yeah well i mean a lot of people were talking um after persona 4 arena or persona 3 arena that persona 5 might kind of like unique unite all of the worlds but um i mean you do see hints of that like in persona 5 it's interesting that you mentioned that rise is back in tokyo because you actually see um, advertisements for Rise when you're going through Shibuya Station early on in Persona 5. Did you see that? Yeah, they're like, I'm trying to like skate around this because obviously I'm Barcos. Right. But yeah, there's like those little mentions of Rise as like she's a top idol again, basically, which is kind of nice. It's like, oh, okay, this is this feels cool that she's like kind of giving some given some lip service beyond Persona 4. Yeah, Katie's in the middle of Persona 5 right now, and she's, like, really freaking far, and I'm really jealous. Um, uh, you weren't here, uh, Katie, but I was telling Nadia that after we're done with our Persona 4 Golden Report, we might do a Persona 5 report, because um, we'll probably be playing it in April, and God knows yeah. we don't have anything else to play, so. We got Final Fantasy fourteen, I guess. Torment. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. really quickly, uh, you also put Sharp FE on this list um and we haven't given sharp fe nearly enough enough love on this podcast so i I think this is your opportunity to to kind of rectify that yeah i really like tokyo mirage sessions like more i almost feel like i was alone in being kind of a cheerleader for this game last year like really yeah like there are people that gave it positive reviews but i feel like it just kind of vanished really quickly and i think the turn-based combat in that game is so fun and ridiculous it's like it makes because sometimes turn-based combat can feel slow right like you're Mm. being strategic you're like planning out your next move and stuff but in tokyo mirage sessions you can kind of like chain things up and it becomes like this really like fun everything's kind of like a musical number in a way because they're idols obviously and it's just everything feels like a performance in that way it's like really flashy and colorful and quick and I don't, and that game's just like, it's, the story's not the best. I think the characters are like really nice and enjoyable. And I I wrote a thing for AV Club last year about Tiki, who is a Fire Emblem character, or she was a Fire Emblem character, but she's one of the ones that appears in Tokyo Mirage Sessions because like the crossover. But she's basically like a Hatsune Miku character, mm-hmm. but they like humanize her in this really interesting way. And I wrote like a big article for the AV Club like forever ago about that. But I think Tokyo Mirage Sessions does stuff like, like kind of gives shows the human side of idols that some Japanese media doesn't really do. Like mm. Idol Master kind of does that, but Idol Master's never been localized in the U.S., so that's that's another thing uh, aside from the anime. But 
Yeah. All right. Um, you should go check out Katie's other articles on the site this week. She did a thing about uh, Resist Jam. She did a thing about SMT. She'll have some stuff on Near Automata. Um, yeah, she's been writing a whole bunch for us. So, um, and it's always been fun to kind of be able to read her perspective. And I'm glad that we have so much SMT fandom on the site. Um, US, US SMT gamer, I guess. Um, but in any case, um, Katie, thanks for dropping by and we'll see you around the site. Thank you. All right, that's the end of our episode. Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere that podcasts are sold. Do me a favor. Leave me a review. Uh, leave us a good review. We always like to hear your thoughts. And if you really love the podcast, it would help so much if you could give us a positive review. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You can find Nadia on Twitter at Nadia Oxford. And you can find Katie on Twitter at YouMayKatie which is Y-U-M-E-C-A-T-Y. So yeah, and of course, follow us on all of the social media channels and all of those things. Uh, Nadia, do you got anything that you want to highlight on the site this week? Uh, I've been like writing about Zelda uh, like nonstop. So please read that stuff. And uh, (laughs) I also wrote a thing about uh, how you shouldn't take review scores too personally. I think that's good for your blood pressure. You should probably read that. Seven out of ten. Ah, 8.8, 8.8, never forget. You also took a moment to rant uh, a little bit about the fact that DuckTales won't be on the Switch. Or, sorry, the <laughs> Disney Afternoon Collection won't be on the Switch. And in the process, you revealed a horrible truth, Nadia. You were not a fan of Disney Afternoon? Not very much. Um, I, I liked Chip and Dale. That was a fun show, but uh, show, yeah. I found the other stuff boring. What's funny is that I didn't really care for Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. They're so cute. They're so small. They're they're small and cute, but um, they never really did it for me for some reason. Um, I did love Tailspin. Um, I love DuckTales, and I love Darkwing Duck. Um, did not care for Goof Troop at all. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Goof Troop. I'll, you know what? I kind of like Darkwing Duck. I, I would sometimes watch that. Darkwing Duck um, was so good. Um, such a great take on like uh, the superhero thing. And I always loved that that Darkwing Duck was like, you know, he was, he was a deep powered hero, but for some reason, I, I guess he's like a typical suburban dad, but he's also he apparently is. really rich because he has like, like all of the Batman powers and stuff. When, uh, when I was in grade seven, a kid wrote a fanfic, like just involving like all of these characters from like every universe he could think of. And basically someone had killed Hulk Hogan's grandmother. So they, they were all on this quest to find out who killed Hulk Hogan's grandmother. And I, the the main passage I remember most is that Mega Man died fighting Mega Vault by backing him into a bucket of water. But Mega Man <laughs> okay, died because he was holding on to Mega Vault. Places. No, Mega Man, poor Mega Man. <laughs> my my main re- recollection of Darkwing Duck, like the episode that I remember the most, is for some reason the one where Bushroot, who is the plant the plant person yeah. or the plant duck, I guess, uh, also ends up turning. Um, Darkwing Duck's adoptive granddaughter or daughter into a plant too and it's all cool until she starts to literally melt (laughs) she's like melting into like organic plant matter and like the very like uh the it, it was very I don't know um it's very Cronenbergian 
like it's like really messed up like she's turning into this Cronenbergian mass of goo and like the nice. image of her like losing even the ability to speak like still stays with me to this day it was it apparently traumatized me yeah that would I can see why the show's a little darker than it gave it credit for apparently yeah just a little bit uh but I enjoyed it um I, I liked it back in the day though it, it had that late 90s like thing where it's like Darkwing Duck can never have a gun yeah, but no one could have a gun back then, except Batman the Animated Series. Uh, the people actually had guns in that one. They had guns, but Batman did not have a gun. The bad oh, guys never had, had guns. Gun. Uh, yeah. But Darkwing Duck had a gas gun. Yes. Which always kind of bugged me, but I digress. Anyway, go check out her <laughs> thoughts on the site. And keep an eye on us, uh, as always. But yeah, we'll be back next week, as always. And we'll be talking about Torment Tides of Numenera and Mass Effect. Lots of Mass Effect. And we may or may not be doing another Persona 4 Golden Report. Perhaps, perhaps we'll give it a couple of weeks and Nadia will have a chance to finally wrap up Persona 4 Golden and we can do a final Persona 4 Golden Report, which I know will make people very sad because they've been enjoying yeah. it. But all we'll things must come to an end, as Q would say. And with that, our episode must also come to an end. And so until next week, thanks for listening. And for Katie and Nadia and myself, um, I've been Kat Bailey, and we'll see you again next time. Happy adventuring.